Make no mistake, there will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John Trump incited the insurrection against the United States. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Well, of course he incited it. I got the feeling that something right. Who do you think incited it? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. They have to decide whether they want to tell the truth about it or not, maybe. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Republican senators aren't good with that. You know, that telling the truth stuff. Oh, yeah. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. Welcome to it. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Also, maybe, should I announce, in fact, Desi Doyen, that I am Q? Or should I leave that for another day? <laughs> I guess you should leave that for another day, because another day, that's kind of a big deal. Okay, yeah. I, I'll need time to explain it and so forth. So anyway, sure, yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> welcome to the Bradcast. Great, great to have you all here. Uh, hey, as we go to air, Joe Biden uh, it has been in office for just one single full day as president of the United States, even though I got to say, frankly... Uh, even though the dude has been there for, you know, like five minutes, it seems like Donald Trump has been gone for months and months, doesn't it? Is that, <laughs> yeah. is that just me? No, it was. I think I even said something like that yesterday. It's like, wow, this last couple of weeks have been the longest years of my I, life. I, yeah, I just I, I can't forget about him quickly enough. Yeah. I have put him into my past. Uh, in any event, we've got much to talk about with my guest momentarily regarding the flurry of executive actions issued so far by the new administration and the battle now underway in the U.S. Senate where Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are doing whatever they can to whatever they can think of to hold on to as much power as they can in the uh, upper chamber of Congress, whether they deserve it or not, while in minority status there now. Uh, so a lot of Joe Biden stuff ahead today. But first, as we've been discussing, you can't look forward without looking back, uh, which I hope is a lesson that the Joe Biden Department of Justice will keep in mind when they finally get to work in bringing accountability, hopefully, for all that has happened over the past four years. 
But we've got first some Trump accountability and schadenfreude news to start with. That's always fun. Uh, Before we get to David Dayan, Uh, he'll join us for a look at the new Biden administration on day three or so of his presidency. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said on Friday that she will send the article of impeachment against Donald Trump to the U.S. Senate on Monday triggering the start of the former president's trial on a charge of incitement of insurrection of that deadly Capitol riot by MAGA mobsters on January 6th. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer announced Pelosi's intentions for a quick trial on the Senate floor Friday, rejecting Republicans' proposal to push it back to mid-February in order to give Trump some more time to prepare his case. Schumer said there will be, quote, a full trial and it will be a fair trial. Senate Republicans are arguing in Trump's defense that it is pointless and potentially even unconstitutional to try a president after he has left office, though that argument, the argument that it's unconstitutional, frankly, is weak at best and in truth ridiculous, given that other constitutional impeachments have in fact taken place after an executive branch official has already left office. But Democrats say they must hold Trump to account because of the gravity of what took place in that violent attack on the U.S. Congress aimed at overturning a perfectly fair U.S. presidential election. If Trump is convicted at his trial, while he is already out of office, the Senate could vote to bar him from holding office ever again. Once the impeachment article is sent to the Senate on Monday, the trial would then have to start by Tuesday. Are you ready, Des? Tuesday? I am not. Okay. Well, that's under Senate rules unless the leaders come to some sort of bipartisan agreement, though with Democrats and Republicans already having trouble coming to a so-called bipartisan agreement on a so-called power-sharing agreement in the 50-50 Senate, where Dems now have the majority thanks to Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, holding the tie-breaking vote as president of the Senate, uh, it would frankly, it would be a fool's errand to bet on a new bipartisan agreement somehow uh, coming out now regarding impeachment, but we shall see. Pelosi said her nine impeachment managers or House prosecutors are, quote, ready to begin to make their case against Trump. Trump's team will have had the same amount of time to prepare said Nancy Pelosi. Facing his second impeachment trial in two years, Trump has reportedly been having trouble finding anyone willing to represent him on his defense team. But as of Friday, it uh, he has reportedly hired South Carolina attorney Butch Bowers to represent him. According to an advisor, Bowers previously served as counsel to former South Carolina governors Nikki Haley and Mark Sanford. Trump uh, had told his supporters to, quote, fight like hell just before they invaded the U.S. Capitol just over two weeks ago and interrupted the electoral vote count. Uh, He would be the first president. He is the first president to be twice impeached and the first to face trial after leaving office. Democrats say they can move quickly through the trial, potentially with no witnesses because lawmakers witnessed the insurrection firsthand. 
The riots just over two weeks ago left the Capitol badly shaken. The National Guard troops are still guarding the building at this hour. News is just breaking that between 100 and 200 of them have now since tested positive oh dear. for uh, COVID-19. And, of course, five people, including a Capitol Police officer, died in the mayhem before the House impeached Trump just one week to the day later with 10 Republicans joining in, uh, joining in with all the Democrats in support in the House. That before Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president at the same U.S. Capitol just one week to the day after that. That's a whole bunch of stuff over the past uh, two, two and a half weeks. Yeah, three uh, <laughs> three Wednesdays in January went from insurrection to impeachment to inauguration. Yep. Whiplash. Yep. Uh, and then trial, yeah. which by the next Wednesday. Yep. Uh, Pelosi said on Thursday that it would be, quote, harmful to unity to forget that people died here on January 6th. The attempt to undermine our election, to undermine our democracy, to dishonor our Constitution. She said this year the whole world bore witness to the president's incitement. The whole world is now also bearing witness uh, in uh, today's Donald Trump schadenfreude update to what sure looks a hell of a lot like the beginning of the collapse of his business empire. On our previous broadcast, we noted that Trump's final presidential disclosure documents, uh, financial disclosure documents uh, released by the White House on Wednesday, revealed that his key hotel and resort properties had taken a huge hit in 2020 due to the coronavirus and perhaps other factors like people want nothing to do with the guy anymore. Uh, but they uh, lost his his key properties, lost anywhere from a half to two thirds of their previous income over over the past year as compared to the prior three years of his presidency because he screwed up, barely even tried, in fact, to deal with the covid crisis. Those businesses, uh, some of them like his golf courses uh, and uh, hotels already facing financial stress could be in very, very serious trouble as the Trump organization is thought to be some one billion dollars in debt at this point, with much of that coming due in the next year or three. And Trump himself personally on the hook for about 400 million of it on Thursday night, Washington Post's David Farenthold and Jonathan O'Connell had still more bad news for the dis disgraced and now former president along similar lines. Trump's company is continuing to lose key partners, including banks and lawyers that had stuck with him throughout the lowest points of his political career. But they're getting out while the getting is still good. We no longer have any depository relationship with him, said a spokesman for Bank United, a Florida-based bank where Trump had kept more than $5 million in money market accounts. On Thursday, Bank United said it was closing those accounts. It declined to say why. I wonder why. The decision meant that uh, since the attack on the Capitol, Trump has now lost just this is just since that attack. Trump has lost three of the four banks that held his largest deposits. He has money in their banks. They don't even want them to keep it there anymore. His money is too insurrectionist for them. There you go. Insurrectiony. 
Signature Bank and Professional Bank also cut their ties uh, earlier this month since the attack. The fourth bank, Capital One, has declined to comment. (laughs) Of course they have. Hey, Capital One, what's in your bank? Also, Donald Trump's money. Also Thursday, Trump lost one of his best-known law firms, Morgan Lewis, which has represented Trump on tax issues since prior to his running for office. Uh, One Morgan uh, Lewis partner, Sherry Dillon, you may recall, she had become a well-known defender of Trump. She appeared with him back in 2017. Does you'll remember this, that news conference in Trump Tower next to a big pile of papers and oh, folders. yes, his pretend binders that yes. were empty. Yes, they were supposed to represent uh, all the papers he had assigned to relinquish control of all of his businesses, and they were just empty Blank folders with of paper. paper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, on Thursday, that law firm said that the relationship with Trump is ending. We are transitioning as appropriate to other counsel, Morgan Lewis spokesperson uh, said in an email. She declined to give a reason why. Uh, Dylan, Sherry Dillon was also involved in the Trump organization's handling of an estate called Seven Springs in suburban New York. Now, keep this one in mind, because I think you're going to be hearing more about Seven Springs. This is where uh, the uh, Trump organization got a $21 million tax break through a so-called conservation easement. Essentially, they promised not to develop some of that land in exchange for a tax benefit. Well, now Trump's dealings with Seven Springs have become the focus of two different state investigations, One by the Manhattan District Attorney, the other by the New York Attorney General. As Trump is thought to have wildly inflated the value of that property in order to leverage it for loans. Meantime, devaluing that same property in regard to his taxes, to his tax documents. That, of course, would be something called fraud. If you're looking for a word to describe it and the uh, state prosecutors may now have a thing or two to say about that fraud in the coming days now that he is out of office. The decision by Morgan Lewis marks at least two law firms now that have since cut ties with Trump's company uh, following the uh, January 6 insurrection. The first firm, Safath Shaw, announced its decision last week. This week, the news site, uh, the news site, American Lawyer, reported that a third firm, Alston and Bird, was also ending its work with Trump's company. Alston and Bird also declined to answer questions from The Washington Post about it. In the in the uh, immediate wake of the attack on the Capitol, the Trump organization lost two of its real estate brokers, its e-commerce vendor, its chance to host the 2022 PGA Championship golf tournament, and its hopes of hosting another golf tournament, the British Open. That's gone. Also, New York City said it was ending uh, the uh, contract that it had with the Trump organization That amounted to about $18 million a year. And one more. uh, Elsewhere, the uh, two two major tenants in Donald Trump's office building on Wall Street, uh, the Girl Scouts of Greater New York and a tuberculosis-fighting charity, they said they were seeking to leave the building. They don't even want to be in his building. The Trump Organization has not said whether they will let them break their leases, 
I'm sure they won't. Uh, and uh, Trump will then be forced to sue the Girl Scouts. <laughs> Because, yes, that's how he rolls, especially when he's desperate, which I think he may soon be if he is not already uh, there. Actually, there's one more here. The The backlash to his actions has hit even uh, some of the smallest of Trump's business partners, including the organizers of a triathlon called the Tri at the Trump. It's held at his golf course outside Charlotte. The uh, Chuck McAllister, the founder of the event, uh, said it was all on track before the Capitol. Uh, he says uh, it was expected to attract about 450 athletes and about 1,000 spectators, but then McAllister said the Capitol attack caused all the sponsors and vendors to pull out. So he had to cancel the event. Sad. It was actually the second time, however, that, uh, the, uh, that McAllister had to cancel the event because of political backlash against Trump. In 2017, he also canceled the previous triathlon after Trump said that they were very fine people amongst the white supremacist protesters in Charlottesville. Nonetheless, McAllister, having not learned his lesson, came back to Trump. And like anyone dumb enough to deal with Trump once, much less twice, McAllister got burned again. He said it's like deja vu, like Groundhog Day. He said he was unsure whether he would come back in 2022. The name's toxic. It's toxic to some people. That's never going to change. And apparently what's never going to change is he's, the dude's actually considering coming back in 2022. What, what are you thinking? Oh, man. Uh, anybody who, well, you know, anyone who's doing business with Trump in the first place ain't thinking at all. And so, yeah, it's toxic, his name, and glad he's noticed that's never going to change. But you know what has changed? The presidential administration. And it is already a breath of fresh air, a whole new world, if you will. So let's take a quick break here and we will come back with progressive journalist and American prospect executive editor David Dayan to look at the early agenda of the first few days of the Biden administration and the arguably ridiculous dispute over power sharing in the now democratically controlled U.S. Senate. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Maybe somewhat of an overstatement, but uh, we'll take it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On his first day in office, which was no more than a half day, President Joe Biden signed no fewer 
than 17 executive actions and orders, many of them uh, directly rolling back the worst and often most corrupt uh, excesses of the Trump era on climate, like rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, canceling the long controversial Keystone XL pipeline, on immigration, ordering a halt to construction of the border wall, halting the expansion of immigration enforcement, reversing travel restrictions from Muslim-majority countries. On the coronavirus, stopping the U.S. withdrawal from the World Health Organization and naming Dr. Anthony Fauci to head the U.S. delegation to that international body. And launching a 100-day mask challenge and mandate on federal property. On the census, Joe Biden required non-citizens to be included in that count as per the U.S. Constitution. On equity, preventing workplace discrimination uh, discrimination against LGBTQ people and ending the ban on transgender people in the military and on the economy by extending a nationwide moratorium on evictions and foreclosures and extending a pause on student loan repayments and interests until at least the end of September. That was a summary of just day one as the administration began both its rollback of Trump-era policies and an aggressive start to tackling the four ongoing crises identified by the new administration, namely the COVID crisis, the economic crisis that has come with it, the climate crisis, and the long-standing racial justice crisis left to this new Democratic president in a bit of a deja vu fashion to 12 years ago when the previous new Democratic president was left to deal with a host of smoldering disasters and and, uh, and an economy in freefall that was left behind by the Republican president before him. On day two, Joe Biden signed some 10 executive orders to begin tackling the COVID crisis after it seems the Trump administration had absolutely no national strategy in place at all to distribute vaccines or to safely reopen schools and workplaces. And then on Friday, day three, the new president was set to enact a host of measures to begin providing economic relief to a nation facing joblessness, homelessness, and a hollowing out of the uh, uh, workforce not seen since the Great Depression in the 1930s, much less the Great Recession of 2007 and 2008. In the days ahead, the Biden administration uh, plans still more executive action on buying Americans to uh, help prop up manufacturing here, on racial justice and equity, on climate, health care, immigration, and restoring America's role as a global leader. It is all, of course, an ambitious plan, at least as I see it being rolled out so far, but not to sound ungrateful, we are progressives around here, so there is always more that can and arguably should be done, as my next guest may argue. And oh yeah, there is that whole other branch of government, the legislative branch, where Democrats have now finally taken partisan control of the majority, sort of, but where Republicans are eager to renew their role as obstructionists of White House action and pretending that they are so-called fiscal conservatives with suddenly newfound, uh, newly rediscovered concerns about things like the national debt and budget deficits 
Joining us now to discuss all of this and maybe more in his first post-inaugural appearance on the broadcast is our friend David Dayan, investigative financial journalist and the executive editor of the American Prospect, where he is also author of what had been their daily indispensable unsanitized newsletter chronicling the nation's disastrous response and fallout to the COVID crisis. But unless I'm mistaken, that has now become their first 100 newsletter chronicling the various successes and failures of the new Joe Biden administration as it settles into office. David is also the author of two books, most recently, the well-timed, monopolized life in the age of corporate power. Welcome back to the broadcast, David Dayan. All right, Brad, thanks for having me on. Lots to talk about today, my friend, with a lot going on, damn near all of it, which you have been tracking in your first 100 newsletter and at the uh, Day One Agenda section of Prospect.org. You guys have been putting that together for the better part of the last year. Uh, since actions on Friday deal with economic relief, which is one of your specialties, I want to get into some of the specifics there. But first, let me start uh, much easier, I think, uh, more broadly for the moment. How's Joe Biden doing just a few days into his term? What do you like? What do you not like? Uh, and what do you hope to see from him and the administration in the coming days? And I will go make a sandwich while you answer. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, try to try to give someone a report card based on three days uh, of, of of work. Um, you know, I mean, I I think like like everything in life, there there are shades of gray here. I mean, there there are certainly things that I I am uh, appreciative of and and impressed by. Um, most notably, the uh, in, the unwillingness to get caught up in kind of a, a Fox News game mm -hmm. of, of worrying about optics. Yep. So I'm reminded of the part where uh, he immediately asked uh, uh, certain individuals uh, who were appointed during the Trump administration to resign, as is his ability un uh, uh, under his executive authority mm -hmm. for certain uh, uh, members that serve at the pleasure of the president. And uh, there was a case of this guy, Peter Robb, who yeah. is the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board and kind of a viciously anti-union guy who uh, Trump put in there. Uh, he was asked to resign. General counsel of that, that board kind of uh, sets the priorities for what cases mm -hmm. come before the NLRB. So it's pretty important. He refused to resign when he was asked to. And I imagine under Obama, there would have been, you know, a series of meetings and wondering mm -hmm. if Fox News was going to uh, get mad at them if he, if he went ahead and fired the guy. Uh -huh. uh, there was no such worrying or, 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 or hedging. Uh -huh. uh, the guy was fired within about five minutes right. uh, after he uh, uh, said he would not resign. So, I mean, as a, you know, kind of a, a signal that he's, he's not going to, sort of sit back and take the, uh, uh, any kind of... Uh, crap. Issues. You can say crap. And a bunch of yeah. crap on the right. <laughs> uh, you, you know, that was really encouraging. Um, you know, the fact that even before uh, the inauguration, Biden put out a $1.9 trillion package uh, of, of relief measures mm -hmm. uh, uh, reacting to COVID-19. Uh, this, this is... And... and explicitly said, I don't care about the deficit. 
mm-hmm. this is this is something that uh, with interest rates really low, this will be better for our fiscal future if we take action now. Um, there, there, there was really a lot of good to to see in that 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 he's not going to get sucked into a deficit hawk argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was so, it was actually nice to see the. Uh, <clears throat> that he was not negotiating with himself, as we saw so much, uh, so frequently under the uh, the Obama administration. Right. I mean, they set they they set a pretty high bar at the beginning. Now we'll see where that comes down to, because not a single Republican is interested in in that bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that's become very clear uh, since it was released that Republicans are not that interested in dealing uh, with a 1.9 trillion dollar bill. I so, was. Yeah. And and that gets us into the you know the key question of the Biden presidency which has nothing to do with Joe Biden and has everything to do with the Senate Democratic caucus. Yeah, well, don't hold that for a second cuz mm-hmm. I I want to get to that. Uh but I do want to fly through just a few more points on on Joe Biden here and by the way okay. since you mentioned Peter Robb uh, at the uh, National Labor R- Labor Relations Board, as I was uh, reading about that affair and him being pushed out, I was stunned to see. Apparently, they've named Peter Walsh uh, now as the Secretary of Labor. Marty Walsh, yeah. Uh, Marty Walsh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Mayor of Boston. Mayor of Boston. Um, he's a union member. Apparently, there has not been a union member in that role for 50 years David, <laughs> as the head of labor. I, I saw that and I thought that can't be possible. Imagine that. Um, a labor person dealing with labor. A, a, someone who worked in public education mm-hmm. as the education secretary. <laughs> I mean, uh, all of these things, it's, it's, it's a little stunning that it's rare, but it's good to see uh, that that's, that's the place where uh, Biden Biden is headed. Our bar may be a little too low these days, but uh, there you go. We'll take it. And because uh, you mentioned this uh, uh, sort of not folding to the to the right wing media and to the corporate media, because uh, some of the corporate media, it's not just Republicans and Fox News, but, you know, theoretically non wingnut media like The New York Times, etc., they're already questioning how these actions that I just sort of uh, uh, flew through there, how, how they square with Biden's repeated calls for unity right. when many of the actions are things that Republicans might not like. How, how do you respond to those uh, critiques and how should Joe Biden and the administration respond to them? I don't think there can be any unity without accountability. And uh, the, 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 the bottom line is that this, uh, we, we, we saw during the Trump administration their, their idea of unity was, I do what I want, and I don't even tell you about it. Right. So, uh, you know, it's very clear that the Republican conception is unity means do everything that I want. Right. <laughs> and uh, Biden isn't falling into that trap. No, he's not. And I was happy to see there was a question at the end of uh, of his uh, press avail after signing the uh, some of those covid uh, actions on Thursday, I guess, when he was asked, uh, is this strong enough? And he said something along the lines of, hey, you guys were criticizing me that it was too long, uh, too strong. Give me a break, man. And then he just sort of walked out of the office. Refreshing to see, refreshing to see him sign, you know, 10 uh, executive actions in a row, explain what they are, not hold them up and parade them around to look at my great big signature. Just put them down, sign the next one, get out of there. Seems like he's done with that crap. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Well, I mean, that said, the, the thing he was actually responding to there, I would, I would say that, that the questioner was correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Biden is calling for 100 million shots in 100 days. Right. That, that is his benchmark, mm-hmm. right? We were at that benchmark in the final two weeks of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. It will not uh, be much of a stretch to get to that benchmark. And if you think about the fact that, that at least in the vaccines that we're giving currently, you need two shots. If you're talking about only 50 million people getting covered mm-hmm. within, you know, by the end of April, which is the 100-day mark, uh, you're not talking about uh, something that will give us herd immunity for like a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not good enough. Uh, and, and I don't think Biden thinks that that's good enough for anybody uh, in his COVID response team. I think they're under-promising mm-hmm. here. Uh, they're trying to, to build a very low bar so they can say, see, we got over it. Uh, the real problem with vaccines is, of course, uh, uh, the, per, the production, uh, yeah. the supply issues. Right. Uh, are we going to have enough vaccines to put in arms? Because mm-hmm. you know, with a, despite a slow start, the states are starting to figure out how to get this vaccine out. And what they're coming up against now is the fact that there's just not enough. Right. Will the uh, will his uh, invoking of the Defense Production Act should that work? Will that work to uh, to increase the production as needed to to speed this whole process up? It may, but uh, there's you know it's really something that we should have done months and months and months ago and had prepositioned all yep. of these these the you know these stores mm-hmm. of vaccines. Uh, what would it have cost us? To say, all right, every uh, you know these six vaccines that we think are the likely candidates to eventually get approved, we'll make a hundred million of each right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what should have been spent on. And if you spend an extra ten billion dollars on a vaccine that ends up never getting made, who cares? I mean, the right. the, the value of getting the vaccine out faster is almost incalculable from an economic standpoint. Uh, if we I've seen reports that for every day you speed up and return this economy to normalcy mm-hmm. uh, by getting uh, these vaccines out, uh, it's like $10 billion in economic activity right. every day, right? So if you can accelerate it by two or three months, that, that is just an absolutely uh, uh, a huge amount of, of economic benefit. And we should put as much money and, and resources to that. The problem now is that you do have to retool a factory to mm-hmm. uh, uh, put it in place where you can, uh, uh, you know, dis- produce right. the new vaccines. Uh, I would argue that the other vaccine candidates that had their factories set up should be immediately converted to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines that are already going out mm-hmm. so that uh, that's an e- a bit of an easier lift, at least. But what I've read is that it's probably months until this Defense Production Act stuff mm. actually uh, re- becomes something that increases supply effects. And I do want to underscore, because this has sort of been a recurring theme in your uh, newsletter of late that you, you just mentioned here a minute or so ago, that uh, you cannot spend too much money to get beyond this crisis, uh, right. that it is that important uh, of course, not just in lives, but, you know, to the economy itself. Is that something that um, do you get any sense that a uh, Democrats understand that or uh, I guess be the uh, more troubling that that Republicans understand that, that it is appropriate to spend anything and everything we can mm-hmm. because it will 
you know, redound in the not too distant future once we can uh, get, you know, this 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 virus taken care of and get the economy back on track. Well, if you look at the Biden bill, uh, it spends uh, if you're talking about vaccines, testing, a public health jobs core of 100,000 people whose job it is to uh, you know, administer mm-hmm. the vaccine, do public outreach, things like that, it's $400 billion. So mm-hmm. that, that is an appropriate level of support. Um, uh, Republicans sort of pay lip service to say, well, I don't like this bill. I would do something on vaccines, but I don't know about this whole big bill. <laughs> and they should be held to that. Uh, I, have, uh, uh, I have put out sort of this idea for a, a, a shots and checks strategy, mm-hmm. right? right? So uh, Republicans have said that they would support another direct payment uh, topping up from $600 to $2,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least enough Republicans have supported that that you could get the 60 votes as of three weeks ago when Donald Trump was uh, saying that that's what should be done. Mm-hmm. And then they pay lip service and say, yeah, I would do something on vaccines. So put those two together and put it before the Senate and force Senate Republicans to actually take a stand, a recorded vote on that, I think would be very smart. Uh, first of all, I think you could probably get it through. Uh, and any time you can get that money through faster, you're going to want to do it mm-hmm. uh, under regular order. You can always go back and, and you know, we'll talk about the filibuster mm-hmm. and budget reconciliation, but you can always go back and get the other things in that package just with Democratic support. Mm-hmm. But if you can get the, the you, there's a, a need to get the vaccine money out now, and there's a need to get the, the, the direct check money out now. So uh, why not do it? It puts points on the board. It fulfills a campaign promise. The reason that Georgia was won, at least in part, mm-hmm. was because of the $2,000 checks issue. Uh, and it, it shows the Democrats, it builds trust among Democrats are like, yes, you know, we campaigned on this, and then we got it done within weeks. Uh, so I think that that would be very valuable. Uh, and then, you know, if Republicans go against what is very popular, it's extremely popular to send checks to people, and it's extremely popular to, uh, you know, get, get uh, as much vaccines out into the population as possible, mm-hmm. they can be held accountable for, politically, for uh, voting against that. And there was a, um, well, there was a, a remark that Jen Psaki made, the new uh, White House uh, uh, press secretary, uh, when she was asked about this $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, and isn't that too much, and isn't that too much money, we need to lower it, and she uh, actually, I thought, had a great answer. She said, well, tell me which part we are spending too much money on. Should we spend less money getting uh, Americans vaccinated? Should we spend uh, right. less money improving the economy? I thought that was the right way to deal with it. That said, David, you actually surprised me a bit in uh, in your call for this splitting off these checks and shots, as you call it, um, you know, relief checks to get Americans to $2,000 on top of the $600 checks, actually cards, apparently, that they're getting now, which yeah, some t- of them are cards. Yeah, ticks. Why? Why are some of them <laughs> I cards? Ex- I mean, I can explain that. Uh, we, uh, please there, do, and then I'll get a, back. Yeah, MetaBank, which is a uh, large uh, prepaid debit card company, signed a contract with the IRS to distribute. Uh, uh, this happened during the first go round of of, uh, of the direct payments. 
Yeah. Uh, they did it to, I think, less people in the first go-around. And uh, there are a bunch of fees attached to those cards. And they have a forced arbitration agreement. So and if I get a $600 card, I'm not actually going to get $600 out of it? You might not. Uh, if you go out of network on your ATM to take money out of it, you're going to pay money uh, to MetaBank. Uh. And uh, I know that uh, some House Democrats have been extremely critical of this. They wonder why, when we have the ability to do direct deposit or just a paper check, mm-hmm. why are we doing this This uh, public-private yeah. partnership yeah. Uh, where we put MetaBank in control? Yeah. And why are we putting a forced arbitration agreement so if there's a dispute about this money that you were given uh, from the government that you're not allowed to use government courts to, to, no. to argue the case? It, it's absolutely uh, uh, astounding. All right. Well, we can't get distracted on that. Well, that was, is that an action of the Trump administration or the Joe Biden administration? Well, it was initially a Trump thing, but uh, obviously they're still doing it. So uh, I think Biden should hear from uh, uh, House Democrats on this. And, and I, I, I question why we're continuing with it. Yeah, that. well, hopefully if they, if they do pass the additional 1400 it won't be by a card. Anyway, uh, well, well, the point that I wanted to get to here was that I am old enough to remember, David, when you seem to be against Democrats during the previous administration agreeing to a so-called skinny bill where they, you know, pull out the the more popular things because it you know passes the main stuff that everyone agrees on but it leaves all of the other very important stuff if much harder to get through congress uh leaves that out and removes the leverage to get all of the stuff adopted i don't understand what's different now. here's here's what's different yeah democrats are in control of the senate Mm -hmm. so if there's a, a bill that's available that 50 democrats can support they don't need bipartisan support, especially something that's budget-related that mm-hmm. can go under the budget reconciliation process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, by all accounts, a vaccines and checks bill has 60 votes in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if it doesn't, then you can always put it back in the reconciliation bill, and, and, and really nothing changes. I, I, I think that every aspect of the, uh, of the Biden plan is available, uh, but there is a desire to get particularly direct payments and vaccine money out quickly. And so if you have that opportunity, you can do it. And let me just also address, this isn't a skinny bill. I mean, it would cost about $460 billion to send those checks out Mm -hmm. at $1,400 each. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the vaccine program that that Biden was talking about is a $400 billion dollar program so you put those two things together and it's almost the size of the 900 billion dollar bill that was passed in january and it's bigger than the 2009 stimulus Mm. at 865 billion dollars so you know skinny is a relative term this is this would still be a very very significant bill and it appears to have bipartisan support that can pass under regular order so I say you go ahead and do that. And then the rest of the package, you can always go the reconciliation route, or you can, as David Brooks said, uh, get rid of the filibuster 
and then pass it under Democratic uh, support. Which brings us to our last point here as we go to uh, as we go to air former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and new Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are still apparently hammering out an agreement to share power in the U.S. Senate, sort of. Because uh, the makeup is now 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, but with Democratic Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie, uh, the Dems have the majority as she is the uh, president of the Senate. But Mitch McConnell is pushing for an agreement from Chuck Schumer and the Democrats that they will not abolish the legislative filibuster in order to, you know, pass this power sharing agreement where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, essentially... Uh, both parties have the same number of people on each committee, right. but the chair will be a Democrat. And if there's a tie, it goes to the Democrats. So why should Chuck Schumer agree to not abolishing the legislative uh, filibuster? What is in it for him or the Democrats to, to take that deal from McConnell? Well, there's nothing in it for him. And in fact, Schumer has been insistent that he's not going to take that deal, that, that he is not going to include language that says we will keep the filibuster intact. There's no reason for him to do that. McConnell got rid of the legislative filibuster in 2017 for Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. Before that, Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster uh, for nominees, executive branch nominees, and lower court justices in Mm -hmm. 2013. You can obviously do it. And the decision on whether or not that's going to happen is up to Democrats in the Senate caucus and up to the level of Republican obstruction. So there would be no reason, and by the way, there's no binding nature of any agreement where, you know, it's, it's almost like saying, hey, Chuck Schumer, will you pinky swear not to, <laughs> uh, not, not to uh, abolish the filibuster? I mean, he could easily say yes, and then two months later see everything being obstructed and say, I've changed my mind, right. and then just do it. So what's the, what's, uh, what's the holdup, David? Done. I mean, I, why don't they just get this done with? And well, because right now is, Republicans McConnell are still McConnell is insisting on this. Yeah, and uh, you know, I tend to think that this is really about McConnell trying to delay the Senate from acting as long as possible. So as long as there isn't a power sharing agreement, mm-hmm. it's kind of business as usual in the Senate right now which means that the committees have whoever the com- were on the committees in the last Congress. Right, Republicans. Which means that Republicans are yes. in control of all these committees right, right now. Uh, that's a problem for uh, getting nominees through. It's a problem for uh, enacting legislation. And McConnell is really happy about this because yeah. it delays... The, uh, uh, the timing of when uh, Democrats can actually take power of the Senate. So, of course, he's going to put out some outlandish uh, request. And as long as McConnell says, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't agree, uh, as long as that we're looking for an agreement here, uh, then, then he, can, he can hold off. But, you know, I, I don't know how long that's going to be able to take. And, of course, you know, starting next Tuesday, apparently, there's going to be an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. That's so, what I hear. Yeah. Uh, there, there's, there's a whole host of things kind of up in the air, and delay is, 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 a, is an assistance to McConnell right now. Right. Kudos for Schumer <clears throat> for saying, no, we're not going to uh, agree to that crap. But 
Is there anything that stops Schumer from saying, "Okay, that's it. I'm calling the vote. You know, in the next 10 minutes, we are changing this so that Republicans are no longer in control of committees in the U.S. Senate? I mean, that's a really good question. I I think that at some point he's going to have to pull that trigger. Uh, You know, the majority means everything in the U.S. Senate. Uh, you know, they can use unanimous, uh, they can deny unanimous consent, the Republicans can, mm-hmm. and make it harder to get to the, the, the question. But I, I, I believe, unless my Senate procedure is wrong, that eventually uh, Democrats could uh, get some sort of organizing rule through uh, without uh, uh, McConnell's uh, uh, assent. Any idea why McConnell wants to hold up the, uh, the, the impeachment trial? And, and frankly, why should he have any say about that at all (laughs) yeah that's another interesting one where they're trying to find agreement you know uh i mean i think mcconnell's all too happy to delay anything and everything just to make things thornier for uh for the senate majority and also for joe biden um uh, you know there's a lot of weird cross pressures around this around whether uh, Republicans want to get rid of Donald Trump, essentially, by barring him from future terms in office, uh, or do they, you know, want to uh, shut down the uh, whole impeachment process entirely? I think there are differing views on the Republican side, including among McConnell, uh, who, who seemingly has put out feelers there that he might agree to uh, not uh, uh, to, to convict uh, Donald wow. Trump. So uh, it's very unclear. I mean, Trump has been had an iron grip on the Republican caucus for so long, yeah. and, and now that he's gone, the question is, does that lift, or do Republicans still listen to their Trumpy base? Uh, so I, I think they're working that out right now. Well, it is, uh, as we started this segment, a whole new world, but David Dayan, I'm glad you are in it with us to figure it out as uh, as it becomes clear, if it ever does. David Dayan is the executive editor of the American Prospect, uh, which you can find and you should find, particularly their day one agenda section, uh, which we didn't really get to even get into, but maybe we will in the future at prospect.org. You can follow the prospect on the Twitters at the prospect, and you can follow David there as well at D Dan. And yes, you can and should buy his new book, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power which I think may become very relevant over the next few months here in this new world. David Dan, greatly appreciate you joining us uh, today, my friend. I look forward to doing it again in the near future. Okay, thank you. Thank you, brother. All right, let's take a quick break here. We will close with something that, Desi Doyne, you remembered. I didn't, but you have <laughs> a very good memory. Uh, it's it's funny, and I think it's, it's just kind of a, well, a, a perfect way to end this uh, horrific administration. Good reminder. All right, quick break, and we're back with that right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. 
You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Yeah, we can breathe, right? We <laughs> yeah. can breathe for the first time. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Good to breathe with you. Uh, so, Desi Doyne, because you have a ridiculously good memory for, <laughs> uh, for things like this, and because I think that we, the people, actually the nation itself and our constitution and our institutions, as brittle as many of them proved to be over the past four years, um, but I think a, a bit of a victory lap, a breather, if you will, uh, for this nation and its constitution, having survived the assault on just about all of it over the past four years, uh, you know, with with nearly half a million Americans in the meantime, having succumbed nonetheless to Donald Trump's failures um Nonetheless, despite that, through assaults on our very democracy, even up to the final minutes before a new president was mercifully sworn in over the past week in the shadow and the uh, ruins of an uh, of an actual physical attack on the on the U.S. Congress and the and the Capitol building. With all of that, because you have such a good memory, Desiree. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you reminded me of the appearance by John Stewart on Stephen Colbert's show just 11 days into the by then already exhausting Trump administration when John Stewart shared what were his own versions of Trump's flurry of executive orders that he had been issuing at the time to try and break the nation and its longstanding institutions Uh, So John Stewart had some thoughts that I think are worth remembering almost four years to the day later after an extraordinary week. Uh, This includes uh, John Stewart's last of his uh, so-called executive orders. Um, He's wearing a bad wig pretending to look like Donald Trump. Right. Here you go. So here's the last of, of Stewart's Donald Trump executive actions from the Stephen Colbert show on January 31, 2017. May I read the last executive order? Yes, you may. I, Donald Day Trump, do declare by executive order that I, Donald J. Trump, am exhausting. <laughs> it has been 11 days, Stephen. 11 <laughs> days. <laughs> 11! <laughs> the presidency is supposed to age the president not the public. <laughs> and the reason, God, the reason no kidding. That, Donald, that I, Donald J. Trump, this is his words, yeah. the reason I, Donald J. Trump, am exhausting is that every instinct and fiber of my pathological self-regard calls me to abuse of power. I want, I, Donald J. Trump, want 
know, deserve, not just your respect, but your adoration. Parades with the tanks and the synchronized dancing. I, Donald J. Trump, am exhausting because it is going to take relentless stamina, vigilance, and every institutional check and balance this great country can muster to keep me, Donald J. Trump, from going full Palpatine with the lightning coming out of the fingertips and the fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate. We have never faced this before. Purposeful, vindictive chaos. But perhaps therein lies the saving grace of my, Donald J. Trump's presidency. No one action will be adequate. All actions will be necessary. And if we do not allow Donald Trump to exhaust our fight and somehow come through this presidency calamityless and constitutionally partially intact, then I, Donald J. Trump, will have demonstrated the greatness of America, just not the way I thought I was going to. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. John Stewart from uh, January of 2017. And, uh, you know, I, we have we certainly haven't come through it calamity less, uh, but partially intact. Constitutionally intact. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we made it. I think we did make it. Good job, everybody. Uh, yeah. Good job, everybody. And I think that, uh, you know, I think the nation and what is left of its institutions actually deserve quite a bit of credit. Indeed. Uh, for standing up. Uh, anyway, that was 11 days in, and they were already exhausted. 11 days into the Trump administration, I remember it very well, and mm -hmm. being similarly exhausted. And uh, am, frankly, no less so after four years of that purposely vindictive chaos. But hey, we made it. Yep. We can breathe. All Lots right. of work ahead, but we made it. There you go. All right. Uh, my uh, thanks to my guest today, the American Prospects, David Dayan, to my producer, as always, Desiree Doyen, yep. and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download all of them, all the years of the Trump administration for free uh, at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who, for the past many years, have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to uh, help us stay on your public airwaves as we head into what will be the 17th or 18th year, I've now lost track, <laughs> of bradblog.com. We'll be celebrating our anniversary in the week ahead. All right, that's it. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. I will see you there. Until I see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.